0: Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, what's next in using PARP inhibitors for patients with ovarian cancer. Morning Commute is developed by Projects of Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and Merck Sharp & Dome Corporation. In this final podcast of our three-part series, Dr. Robert Coleman and Dr. Kathleen Moore look at some of the latest findings on PARP inhibitors, as well as what is on the horizon. Is there synergy between PARP inhibitors and other agents? Will double or triple combination therapies be the next step in ovarian cancer treatment? They also take a look at disparities of care in ovarian cancer and how clinical trials are addressing this. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer 3 You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Coleman is the Chief Scientific Officer at U.S. Oncology Research at Texas Oncology, Shenandoah, Texas. Dr. Moore is the Associate Director of Clinical Research in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Coleman will begin our discussion.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to podcast number three of three, discussing PARP inhibitors in patients with ovarian cancer. Of course, joining me today is my good friend and colleague, Katie Moore at the Stevenson's Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. And of course, I'm Rob Coleman, a oncologist here in uh, Houston, Texas, where I serve as Chief Scientific Officer for U.S. Oncology Research. So today, uh, we're going to capitalize on the previous two discussions. So first, is really talking about the science behind PARP inhibitors, why they work, and how they were introduced into the recurrent treatment setting, then into platinum-sensitive maintenance setting, and then ultimately the big prize, uh, them being incorporated into the uh, uh, frontline setting as primary maintenance. And then, yes, the second podcast, we talked about toxicities and its tolerance for these therapies. And we've and we discussed that in great detail and some strategies on how to mitigate that. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to those first two podcasts. You want to get some some comprehensive nature about how we use these therapies. And that's so this today's podcast, what we thought we would do is focus on the future. Where are we taking this effective therapy now used in the frontline setting of patients who have not been previously treated uh, with PARP inhibitors and uh, using them as as, you know, primarily as a maintenance treatment. And one of the concepts that comes up, obviously, is what do we do in combination? And we tapped into a little bit of this yesterday in the first and podcast one, where we talked about PARP inhibitors being used in combination with bevacizumab. Uh, so the PALO one trial, which we demonstrated um, and presented, uh, Dr. Moore presented very nicely, the efficacy data. Uh, now we have overall survival data for that trial. And we're very excited to see that. And so the question is, how do we take this further? So first, let me uh, welcome uh, Dr. Moore. I forgot to do that at the beginning. So welcome yeah. and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, great. So um, maybe we could start by maybe talking about why are PARP inhibitors of uh, of interest to be used in combination? Maybe let's just start there and then we'll kind of get into like the frontline trials that we're going to be hopeful to hear about soon.
2: Sure. So, as we've talked about in the last two podcasts, PARP inhibitors definitely have monotherapy activities. So these are agents that for a good proportion of high-grade serous and high-grade endometrioid tumors work quite well. Um, but they don't work in everyone, one, and mm-hmm. they don't work as well in everyone in whom they do work. You know, you have folks, like we alluded to in the first podcast, on SOLA1 that hopefully are cured, you know, at seven years, no recurrence. And then you have that same study, which was all BRCA-associated cancers, 24% of of patients recurred during the two years of their PARP inhibitors. So clearly, despite having the molecular biomarker, something was off, you know, and we're learning about that, you know, the importance of the particular mutation and then the microenvironment, et cetera, we're unraveling that sort of as we speak. So I think that when we think about PARP inhibitors, we've made a lot of accomplishments, but um, but this is the new floor, you know? And so now mm-hmm. we're building off of kind of where we are now. We have not peaked and um, we have a lot of patients left to serve, specifically all of those who aren't cured with PARP inhibitors alone. So the interest in combinations kind of comes from that is that basically we're not done. And then the rationale for the particular combinations really comes from our colleagues uh, who are doing really elegant preclinical work, um, both in cell lines and animal models to show how you can improve efficacy of PARP inhibitors with rational combinations, sometimes in biomarker selected subgroups. And so some examples of that that we can dive into maybe a few, we don't have time to go into all of it, but there's rationale for synergy between PARP inhibitors and anti-angiogenic agents. And that has led to a lot of um, development and ongoing clinical trials and actually phase three trials. It's kind Mm -hmm. of the basis for the Paola 1 study, um, amongst others. There's evidence for synergy between PARP inhibitors and um, agents that target the PA3 kinase pathway. And so, you know, our our good friend, you're my good friend, Shannon Weston, has shown beautiful synergy um, both with AKT inhibitors as well as mTOR inhibitors, but probably the strongest signal comes from the work of Gerberg, Wolf, and others with PI3 kinase inhibitors and PARP inhibitors, this metabolic intervention. That has moved into phase three studies. And then the um, preclinical work for PARP inhibitors and immune checkpoint inhibitors really hinging on um, activation of that sting pathway to to, um, sensitize tumors to immune checkpoint was the rationale for some other um, uh, drug development, so so, and there's others. You, know, a myriad HDAC inhibitors and many other things we could talk about. We could have hours of conversation about the combos. But the particular thing of interest is that many of the models in which these projects were done, um, PARP inhibitor and um, ATR is another big one. That's Fiona Simpkins, Dr. Fiona Simpkins' work, were done in really well done models of PARP resistant uh tumors um that won't respond to PARP alone. and then the combination works very well which is the kind of work you need to do these days um we well, should have been doing it all along but particularly <laughs> now uh before you move something into clinic like you really have to show some proof of concept in a tumor that's of high unmet need and start to individualize so you know i think we're starting to get there um those are just three of the studies combos that have moved forward we could talk about others
1: Yeah. So I always kind of say that, you know, when people say what's next for PARP inhibitors or for any compound for that matter, we always say, well, one, we'd like to uh, make them work better in patients that they already work. So how do we augment that activity? Two would be to how do we use them uh, in ways where patients have become resistant to them? So this would be a situation where there's either kind of um, an acquired event of PARP um, resistance. And then the third would be to see if we could get them to work in cases where we wouldn't expect them to work. So these would be ones that say have intrinsic insensitivity. And I think you basically talked about um, all three of those kind of areas of where we wanna where we wanna proceed. And of course, we've got this, this data um, you know that has emerged out of the Tapasio and out of the Mediola trials that have looked at PARP inhibitors. You know in combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors and in mediola in addition of anti inhibitors. So um and obviously I think the signal we got from that as opposed to let's say in Moonstone where we looked at this in com- in, in the platinum resistant patient setting, the platinum sensitive uh you know setting appears to have you know potentially some 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 strong activity there. So maybe you share with us some thoughts on you know how the patient populations might dictate uh what might be the most exciting you know opportunities to move these many, you know, kind of many different ideas forward for uh, like a, uh for a clinical trial.
2: Sure. You know, and and just acknowledging up front that this these are sort of my opinions pending results of clinical data. So this is sort of what <laughs> I think and I could very well
1: be wrong. <laughs> a data free zone data free zone. This is <laughs> what I
2: this is what I think is happening. So I mean well let's start with um the IO immune checkpoint inhibitor plus PARP story, which There were several studies run. you just uh, alluded to Moonstone, we have Topacio, we have OPAL, uh, either uh, PARP inhibitor plus an immune checkpoint inhibitor or PARP inhibitor immune checkpoint inhibitor bevacizumab in a platinum-resistant setting. And the initial studies of that, and these were run by our good friends and brilliant researchers, uh, Drs. Panos Konstantinopoulos, Leslie Randall, and Joyce Liu, well-run studies with very modest to no signal of efficacy. I mean, we have to acknowledge a response rate of barely 20% in a platinum-resistant space is really not a marker to move forward. Um, However, at the same time those were being performed, a similar experiment was um, being done, and you just referenced the Mediola study, which was updated at ESCO this year by Dr. Susanna Banerjee. And this was a study done in platinum-sensitive disease. Instead of chemotherapy, so no platinum. And then BRCA wild-type tumors. So those that aren't guaranteed, you know, you're never guaranteed, but, you know, you can't just say, oh, it was just the PARP, right? This is a platinum-sensitive PARP, BRCA wild-type. And they tested um, Olaparib-Dervalumab versus Olaparib-Dervalumab and Bevacizumab. And it was a small study, but they also characterized the tumors as genomic, um, uh, the GIS uh, score, which is the myriad HRD score, So GIS positive, negative, or unknown. And so in a GIS negative, that's homologous recombination deficiency test negative. You would not expect any efficacy from a PARP inhibitor. Um, even in a platinum sensitive HRD test negative, You know, we know that from Quadra, the response rates, you know, five to 10% at best. But what we saw in Mediola was a 77% response rate. Uh, and it was like hundred percent response rate in the HRD test positive. And these are in the in the triplet for the triplet therapy. The doublet didn't work really well, which is interesting. So is there some magic to this triplet of anti targeting angiogenesis, targeting PARP, and targeting um PD1 or PDL1 in this case? Uh, in a um context of a platinum sensitive tumor that you know, create some, some synergy and and some therapeutic magic. That result may be spurious. It's a very small study, or it may be real, but really we're all kind of on pins and needles to see the result of one of, um, well, really three, but four frontline studies, which are all comer um, in terms of HRD status. Um, Three of those studies have that triplet in at least 50% of the population. So cumulatively, it's several thousand patients who have received the triplet versus the doublet. And so we should be able to tease out whether or not there's some magic to this um, this triplet therapy. Um, but I, I think if it does work, if IO has a hope in ovarian, I think that's the real question. The prior failures may have been related just to the context of the tumor and being so platinum resistant that maybe it's just too late. Um, But when you bring it in with appropriate partners in a tumor that's either less heavily pretreated or still quote unquote sensitive, whatever that means in the tumor microenvironment, maybe you see a benefit. There's a lot of companies riding on that hope right now. And we'll start to see that
1: next year. Yeah. And that's a good point. So, you know, I think i like to break this down, you know, kind of our expectations. So in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, so these are patients that you know have demonstrated that they don't, they're no longer sensitive to a DNA damaging agent as strong as platinum. So our expectations for PARP working by itself in that situation very low. Same thing with the ME checkpoint inhibitors. You know we know that uh, ovarian cancer is not a uh, a mutationally loaded tumor. It's 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 annotated by copy number alteration. Relatively low to mutational burden, and we wouldn't expect and we haven't seen activity with IO therapies alone in that setting, nor in combination with chemotherapy. So we've got these two kind of situ- two agents that really don't have any activity in that setting now being combined demonstrating low activity in that setting. So we didn't really achieve that kind of that push. But as, as mentioned, in the platinum-sensitive setting, where we've actually kind of teed up the patients to potentially respond, you know, we don't really have strong signal with IO and in, in platinum-sensitive uh, disease, but we have a strong signal with PARP in that setting. We have we have seen activity with bevacizumab uh, that is not dependent upon BRCA mutation, for instance. So, um, so it has its own independent activity. So, we're starting to see that these synergies may work in certain patient contexts, which is why it's so exciting to talk about these uh, these ongoing trials that you mentioned. And I'll just I'll just list them here um, for for sake of clarity. So, we have first. Which is combining um, the starlimab uh, as the immune checkpoint inhibitor with, with niraparib as the PARP inhibitor, and bevacizumab is an option. We have Duo O, uh, which is uh, combining dervalumab as the immune checkpoint inhibitor with olaparib as the PARP inhibitor, and bevacizumab is, is given in this patient um, cohort. And we have Keylink, uh, which is the um, uh, using pembrolizumab as the immune checkpoint inhibitor with alaprib as the PARP inhibitor. And here again, the i uh, mean the uh, bevacizumab is, uh, is 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 left up to the investigator and the fourth trial that you mentioned was the, was the in you know, combo which is looking at the immune checkpoint inhibitor of nivolumab with the PARP inhibitor with capra so it does not have that bevacizumab component to that but as you mentioned that's that accounts for 5000 patients <laughs> so that's a huge number of patients with four different immune checkpoint inhibitors three different um, parp inhibitors and in context of bevacizumab so how? <laughs> tell me how you're going to sort through all of that data when it comes out, um, because these are being done. You know, some of these are limiting patients that have BRCA mutation uh, or tumors that have BRCA mutation. So these are going to be largely focused in the germ in the in the tumor BRCA wild type uh, cohort. So we'll have HRD test positive patients, um, and um, but it's really going to complicate the landscape uh, if some of if some of the results are positive and some of them aren't. Uh, so right. I think. Yeah, so you know, how, how how is how, how are our listening audience gonna going to be able to sort through something as complicated as you know three drugs in a maintenance setting and interpreting these trials?
2: I mean, honestly, I think it's just going to come down. These are all well developed or well designed, well executed studies. Um, they're very different, though, as you alluded to. Uh, but I'll tell you, for example, the first study is based on the homologous recombination repair panel, not HRD. So it's a different biomarker. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Keylink is just in BRCA wild type and DuoO is kind of the same, except it has um, a separate cohort for, for BRCA. So so it's really going to be breaking down the biomarkers. I think if they're all positive, the hardest to interpret is going to be my study. So I guess I can say that out loud is is first, um, because we have a different biomarker, um, you know, that's not commonly used in, in the United States, at least yet. Uh, as as a predictive biomarker for PARP inhibitors, and so it's just going to come down to the results. Um, how the kind of control arms, like you know, we sort of look at the control arms and and sort of um, level set, is that a overperforming or underperforming control arm? You know, what is what does the population look like as compared to the other relatively recent data? So it's fortunate that we have relatively comp- contemporary data sets in Prima Paula. Solo is kind of an older study now, actually, um, to compare to. So it's not like we're comparing outcomes to a decade ago, where you, all sorts of things can impact that. So I think it's just going to come down to the results and the and the um, pre-specified analyses, um, analytic analyses. I think I'm super frustrated by decisions being made by non-analytic endpoints. So hopefully that stops with these studies. And also the the magnitude of benefits is going to be very important here. And um, we're talking about three drugs, um, in a maintenance setting, and to show a clinical and uh, statistical benefit in frontline, usually you know the magnitude of benefit is pretty high. You know it's hard to show a benefit there because generally patients do pretty well for a while. So the the magnitude of that benefit is going to be important in whether or not providers and patients are willing to take three drugs.
1: Right, two IVs and an oral. I completely agree with you. You know, we didn't talk much about uh, two two kind of really key questions that come up when we talk about these trials. One is uh, is patient diversity. Um, we um, uh, you know we have we have made a very concerted effort now that the FDA has requested a diversity plan be accompanying INDs as they're filed. Um, and secondly, financial toxicity. Um, so both of these are are going to be looked at. Um, Why why is diversity so important for these kind of frontline, well, actually any clinical trial, but especially in trials that are enrolling, you know, now 5,000 patients uh, answering these specific questions. Now, what are your your thoughts about, about, you know, diversity uh, in clinical trials?
2: Well, I think finally uh, there's really um, a national kind of NCI-led push to not just report Okay, we've been in reporting mode for a long time about uh, outcomes of all sorts of cancers. You know, this isn't unique to gynecologic cancers. Um, based on mainly ethnicity, but it's such an intersection between ethnicity and socioeconomic status and geographic and financial disparities. So there's this kind of intersection that comes together that um, historically has excluded really um, substantial proportions of kind of U.S. citizens and not even, and U.S. non-citizens, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. um, from not just trials, but just access to NCCN level care at least. So that's sort of the first problem, right, is just making mm-hmm. sure that everyone has equitable access to um, exceptional care. And then as a part of that, you know, clinical research is clinical care until so you get access to trials. Uh, And so I think we've just been in this reporting mode of, you know, black men with prostate cancer do far worse than white men and, you know, indigenous populations with cervical cancer do worse than, you know, white women. Okay. We've been saying that for a long time, but we're finally doing some implementation science around it to over, overcome those disparities. Um, And I really feel like the, it was forced on us, not forced because of the importance of this, but the changes were forced on us by the changes that were made during COVID, many of which probably unintentionally led to more equity in access to physicians and therapies um, and trials because we took out a lot of the fat um, that often can be cumbersome for, for patients to participate to even receive therapy um, at an academic center or participate on a trial. You know, virtual visits, I think, were phenomenal um, for opening the doors. Um, allowing patients to treat with standard medicines closer to home when they're on a trial was phenomenal. Direct de- delivery of medications to patients. Um, instead of having them come to Oklahoma City, they can just get their medicine shipped to them. You know, and kind of... Um, leveled the field for a lot of our patients with financial toxicities um, and geographic disparities, um, which which does encompass um, a substantial uh, number of patients who are ethnically diverse. So I, I feel like we sort of showed that we could do this better and be more equitable in access to treatment and trials with COVID, and that has been picked up by the NCI and is now, as you alluded to, Really a big part of a lot of the diversity plans, just to overcome a lot of the barriers that keep a lot of patients from accessing trials. Um, and why is that important? Well, I mean, I guess I don't know why we shouldn't have to explain this. It's important because, um, you know, a trials save lives, you know, and you and I see this every day. Um, they don't always work. And that's just the truth. But sometimes they work and they work really, really well. And nothing makes me happier than to come to work. I have a patient who's from one of our sovereign nations here in Oklahoma City who has, um, you, we're talking about over, but she has uterine papillary serous cancer and she's her too low, but that now qualifies for a study. And she's on a study right now with a what should have been a terminal cancer and she's in a sustained partial response and doing great because she's on a trial. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, it makes me like giddy to think about it. Um, That she wouldn't have had access to anywhere else, but she's got to travel all the way here from her community, so there's still things to overcome. But now we're going to have data on how these medicines work in people who are from sovereign nations, who are oftentimes completely like zero participants of of our indigenous peoples on any trial, maybe one. Mm -hmm. That's a problem, because maybe the drug doesn't work as well, or maybe the disease is different. Same with, you know, Black women or just Black people in general. Endometrial cancer is a great example, again, where endometrial cancer is one of the few tumors that's increasing in incidence and mortality, largely impacting Black women. And they're absent from the trials. And so does the drug work as well? Is it as toxic? Should the dosing be different? You know, how do we best take care of the patients who are actually dying of the disease? And so ovarian cancer is no exception. You had some data up, and I've seen it as well. We're in this sort of weird, good, in a good way, conundrum where the incidence and the mortality of ovarian cancer is declining by about 30%. It was pretty nice over several decades, but not amongst Black women. It's not. It's gone up a smidge, but certainly not going down. And why is that? It's probably multifactorial. But one thing we know just from market data, a lot of market data, is that Black women aren't being offered genetic testing at the same rates as white women. They're not being offered it till later when they're a very advanced disease. So early stage um, diagnosis, we're not testing. Um, And they're not getting PARP inhibitor maintenance offered to them at the same rates as white women. And we know that that has transformed, we think OS or based on early data out of Solo and Paula, but at least PFS. And we know that they're not being offered these medicines. And so- How is that even remotely acceptable? It's not. So we need right. to continue to push this kind of message forward and do all the things that people are doing to basically require that you overcome identifiable barriers to allow all patients to have access to a trial and they can choose whether or not they want to participate, but it shouldn't be made for them by thing extraneous um, considerations.
1: Yeah, that's really well put. I think, you know, this this the solution to this uh, uh, to this, this, uh, you know, despair that we see is complex, um, very individualized, but I think that we are trying to make efforts to to do that. One of the, um, you know, one of the things that has come up has been that um, on a global scale, trials that are run globally, is that there has been, you know, an attempt to reach into ethnically um, very homogeneous uh, populations in other countries, um, and I think that what we learned from that is that um, what we're look what we're trying to do is to uh, represent diverse populations where there's common exposure within the same country. So, so uh, for instance, an Asian American uh, who's lived their life all in the U.S. may be different than say an Asian patient coming from from rural China. And so, um, so we're trying to understand these uh, pharmacogenomic differences in these patient populations, and that's why it's been so important. We also, um, it, you know, we try to match the diverse patient population to the disease category. So, as as you mentioned, Katie, you know, there's uh, we see African American women uh, with high rates of of um, high grade histologies and endometrial cancer. So, when we write trials for for that setting, we're trying to represent that population. Ultimately, the goal is that when we produce a trial result in, in, these, in, these, um, in these ongoing studies, that it's applicable to these drugs being used, you know, under less stringent circumstances outside of a clinical trial, um, and so that we don't run into unexpected toxicities or unexpected lack of efficacy um, that they mirror that patient population. So that's why we feel that this is such an incredibly important component of it. And as I mentioned, Almost all of these trials now have ongoing monitoring of uh, diverse pop- population participation. So great, and for all those who are listening, if you have access to clinical trials, please, please, please support them. This is, as we mentioned, at the beginning. This is how we move the the needle forward. It really is the standard of care, um, and so I hope if you have it at your um, disposal, that you'll support those trials. So, Katie, let me just uh, wrap this up. We we've had a tremendous amount of information um, given. Uh, thank you so much for your expertise and, and your commitment to uh, you know continuing the uh, clinical trial effort uh, in GYN cancers. Um, today, we're talking about PARP and ovarian cancer. Obviously, we're very excited about that, that work that you've done and continue to do. Um, we um, are very excited about the future, uh, looking at ways that we can extend the use of these agents and make them even more effective. Um, we have a lot of Really cool ideas that you brought up about what's coming uh, in the trials that have already unrolled, but also some new opportunities looking at different pathways and ways to leverage these medications. So um, I want to um, close out by thanking um, the the listeners um, as well uh, for your uh, um, for your uh, participation in these podcasts. Katie, thank you again for your uh, tremendous uh, knowledge and uh, and the clarity. I think that you've brought this message to our audience. Uh, It's really, uh, really a a gift that you have. And I I really want to extend my gratitude to you uh, for joining us for these uh, three uh, podcasts. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. You bet. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ovarian cancer 3 You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.